Joel Michael Guy Jr. was accused of murdering and dismembering his parents in 2016. It is alleged that he killed his parents after they told him they would no longer pay his bills. Joel Guy Jr. had given the judge permission to impose the death penalty if he was found guilty. The state did not pursue the death penalty. Would you state your name for the record, please? Robin White. Are you related to Joel Guy Sr.? Yes, he's my brother. And is the defendant your nephew? Yes. And did you know Lisa Guy also? Yes, she was like my sister. All right. I want to uh, direct your attention to uh, the time period uh, around Thanksgiving, just before Thanksgiving of 2016, and ask you if uh, either your brother, if your brother made any statements to you about uh, his future plans regarding uh, the support of his son, Joel Michael. Yes. My brother had stated to me that uh, he was uh, retiring and moving up and he had cut his son off from any money, anything. He was tired of keeping him up. And Lisa was fixing, those fixing to move in the family home and Lisa was fixing to cut him off when come Christmas when he was supposed to come in. But he came in for Thanksgiving instead. Okay. State your name for the record, please. Michelle Tyler. And uh, I'm sorry I've been calling you Dennison, yes. but that's... Um, and uh, are you Joel Sr.'s daughter? Yes, ma'am. And the defendant's half-sister? Yes, ma'am. Uh, in the uh, time shortly before their deaths in November... October, November of 2016, did your father make any statements to you about his intention uh, uh, for him and Lisa to stop providing financial support for the defendant? Yes, ma'am. Did Lisa make statements like this? On October the 28th, my, my youngest birthday, Lisa and Dad did. On Thanksgiving, um, Dad did. Okay, and let's talk about the October statement first. Tell, tell us what Lisa said. They, they had both said, but Lisa said that um, Joel Michael was going to have to find a job because they only had a certain amount of money. The retirement they had re, they had taken out um, his pension, and I'm not sure if that's the name of it, but they only had a certain amount to live on, and they would not be able to afford Joel Michael or paying for his apartment. Okay, things like that. And in, on Thanksgiving, what did your dad say to you? You could. Um, there was a little bit of tension. And so when everyone was inside and it was just but. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It was just me and dad, dad and myself. That was bad grammar. It was just um, me and dad. And, um, we were out on the porch and he said that Lisa hadn't told you, Michael, and that you could, um, you could feel like that that was what was causing the little bit of tension inside the house. That um, you could feel the tension. Okay. Did, he, did he say anything specifically about them withdrawing financial support from he, your brother? That's what he said he had told, that he had told Joel Michael about <laughs> the, um, that he had told, that they had told Joel Michael about um, him having to get a job or, or being cut off, but he didn't, I can't remember his correct verbiage, but it wasn't cut off. It's that they couldn't afford to support him, support him any longer. Okay. Thank you. State your name for the record, please. 
Jennifer Whited. Where do you work, Ms. Whited? I work at Jacobs. What is your What is your position there? I'm the federal contracts manager. Did you know Lisa Guy? I did. How did you know her? Uh, she was one of my employees. I want to direct your attention to Monday, November the 28th, and ask you uh, what happened that day. Well, Lisa, uh, her work schedule started at 7 a.m., and I noticed at about 7.15 that she was um, not in the office. And um, I normally gave my employees about 15 minutes to get there, and, you know, more out of being concerned that they were okay, I would start calling. So um, 7.15 came and she wasn't there. Nobody in her group had heard from her. So I began texting her and she didn't text back. And I thought that was um, highly unusual. Um, so I continued to text her. I continued to text Joel Sr. I called um, and never did get an answer. Would and that have been unlike her to not show up for work and not oh, talk absolutely. If, if she couldn't make it to work, she would have called me immediately. And is, do I understand you to say that you also attempted to call her husband? I did. All right. And how many times would you say you called or texted? I lost track of how many times, but I, I kept doing it thinking this time they're going to answer. Um, I would say at least 20, at least. And then what did you decide to do? I wanted to call the police to have a welfare check done, um, so I, I called the police. On Monday, November 28, 2016, at 9.38 a.m., with a GMT offset of negative 300 minutes, agent ID is, extension is 203. have an employee that um, has not reported for work today and highly unlike her. I've tried calling her home number, I've tried calling cell phone and can't get a hold of her. What can we do about that? Can somebody go by and check on them? Hey, what's the employee's name? Lisa Guy. G-U-Y. Her husband's name is Joel. J-O-E-L. Should he be there too? Does he live with her? Yes, he does. Okay. And I know that their house is for sale and they are moving and she is leaving our company, but that's supposed to be Friday and this definitely isn't like her just not to show up. After that, did you make a second call? I did. And, uh, can you tell the uh, jurors about that? Um, I had realized that nobody had called me, still could not get a hold of uh, Lisa or, or Joel. So I called back to see what they had found with the welfare check. And um, I was told that everything seemed to be fine, that nothing looked out of the place. And so they, they didn't do anything further. I asked them to please go back because I knew that um, something was not right. She had plans with other co-workers today or that day and um, that she would not have canceled or just blown them off. She would have she would have at least called. So I asked them to go back. Tell us your name, sir. Stephen Ballard. And by whom are you employed? Knox County Sheriff's Office. In what capacity? I work in the major crimes unit. I want to talk about the year 2016. Were you still employed uh, in that year, sir? 
Yes, sir. And what was your assignment on uh, November the 28th, 2016? I was a patrol canine officer. In what region of Knox County were you charged with patrolling? West Knoxville. And does that include Golden View Lane? Yes, sir. Now, I want to ask you about that day, sir. Did you have cause to uh, respond to 11434 Golden View Lane here in Knox County? Yes, sir. And what was the basis of you responding to that residence? It was to do a welfare check on Lisa Guy. Okay. And did you, in fact, go to that residence? Yes, sir. After your initial response, uh, did you have cause to return to that residence? Yes, sir. Okay. Where, let me back up a little. Where did you go after your first response, after you left the residence? I went about my daily duties. Okay. And do you recall the uh, lapse of time between the first visit and the second? I'll say approximately an hour to two hours. Okay. And uh, what was the cause to go back a second time? I had spoke with Detective McCord over the phone. We were discussing a robbery that had taken place on Level Road. I believe it was the business was the subway. Um, we briefly spoke about that. Detective McCord asked me what I had found when I went out to the guy residence. Um, I explained to him that the inside foyer light was on. There were vehicles in the driveway, but I got no response at the door. At that point, Detective McCord told me that he had a little more information and asked if I would go back out to the residence with him. Okay, and did you in fact go back with Detective McCord? Yes, sir. Did you go to the back of the residence at any point? I believe at that point, um, uh, Sergeant Gresham was on the front porch and he had pointed out on inside the residence some groceries you could see if you put your face up to the actual window you could see groceries sitting inside in the foyer um, so myself detective McCord we go around the left side of the house if you're facing the front of the house we climb the fence get into the backyard we go up onto the porch area. As uh, soon as you get up in, in front of the door, we noticed the doorknob, one of the doorknobs was missing, and Detective McCord had knelt down to look through that doorknob. Okay. When you say a doorknob's missing, could you physically see into the residence? Through the knob, through the doorknob hole, yes. So where the knob should be? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, and based on that, uh, did you have cause to investigate further? Yes, sir. At some point, the garage door opens and we enter the residence. Okay. And when you say the garage door opens, is that as a result of law enforcement opening that garage door? I believe so, yes, sir. Okay. And I want to ask you, sir, are, are you equipped with a body camera? Yes, sir. Uh, on this date, November 28, 2016? Yes, sir. Hello, Sheriff's Office! I hear a dog with a talent. Not County Sheriff's Office! Damn hammer. Police! Police Department Sheriff's Office!
Yes, sir. And that's where I noticed the hands at the end of the hallway. This room's clear. Officer Sandy Campbell. By whom you employed? Knox County Sheriff's Office. In what capacity? Um, I'm currently assigned to the Forensic Services Unit. And how long have you been employed at the Sheriff's Department? Almost nine years. And has, in the course of your nine years, in the course of your employment, uh, have you exclusively been in the Forensic Unit? Um, no, I've been in the Forensic Unit for almost seven. Okay. And tell us what, uh, if any, training you've received as it has to do with forensics, uh, particularly processing crime scenes. Um, probably the most comprehensive uh, training that I've received is uh, attendance at the National Forensics Academy, which is a 10-week course um, recognized kind of worldwide as the standard, the gold standard of forensic services technician training. Uh, what are the types of things that you're doing on a crime scene in terms of physical evidence? So specifically, my job consists of documenting, collecting, and preserving any sort of physical evidence that we find on the scene. Yeah, and when you say processing and documenting, do you do that through the use of uh, video? 
Yes, video and um, just a digital camera as well, photographs. And did you do a crime scene video in this case? I did. So this is approaching through the garage. into a sort of eating kitchen area. So table in the in the eating kitchen. random items in the kitchen floor. And then this is the kitchen proper. So it's important to note here that the uh, stovetop is on. So this is continuing kind of to the other side of the kitchen counter. And then on into the formal dining room area of the residence. So this is, I'm stepping into the foyer of the residence. This is the front door and it faces the street. And here I'm noting that the heating unit for the house, for the downstairs of the house is set to 90 degrees and it was very, very warm in there. And that's the front door and some miscellaneous groceries that are sitting in the floor. So there's some reddish brown staining right here. And we refer to things that we believe to be blood as reddish brown staining for as for inferentics before they're tested and confirmed by a lab to be blood. So if you hear us refer to RBS or reddish brown staining, that's what that is. So there's more RBS down the side of the wall and here at this gate and on the banister as well. And this is going into the master bathroom. So what you're seeing here is plastic sheeting that's on the ground in two large Rubbermaid type tubs. 
This is a shower with a hose attached to the top. Attachment, the shower head has been removed and a hose has been put there instead, like a garden hose type of thing. So this is a set of like dishwashing gloves <coughs> that are turned inside out on the uh, counter there. This is the rest of the hose. And now we're going into the guest bedroom. This is a dresser. There's a, like a box of bullets there. Box of gloves that's been opened. A container of hydrogen peroxide. It's food grade hydrogen peroxide with some reddish brown staining on it. And here on the other side of the bed is a backpack. And then moving towards the bed. There's some reddish brown staining on the bed. And a laptop computer. <clears throat> Pile of clothes and towel and floor. Right here in the corner, what we're trying to show is that there's a pile of what looks like used medical tape um, and bandage type stuff. So there's a lot of stuff on top of the vanity and a lot of reddish brown staining. And this is back to the room above the garage. It's, looks like it's set up as an exercise room slash possible guest room. This is a large amount of reddish brown staining. And right back here at where this overturned Bowflex is. Wait till we get back to it right here was a set of what appeared to be male human hands that were severed from any other part of they were just the hands <clears throat> you also asked to document the physical clothing that was taken from the residence at 11434 golden Lane. 
Yes. So the, the piles of clothing that we had to really kind of stick everything in, in one. Yes, I did photograph that in a, in a separate manner in the forensics lab here. And tell us the members of the jury what you had to do uh, to kind of make it a cohesive piece of clothing, if you will, or make sense of uh, how it was left. So the you remember in the description, the clothing was all described as cut in one way or another. So we typically speaking, when I'm going to photograph something like that, I want to, that has been cut, I want to kind of put it back together and then show the lines of where it's been cut. And the way that I do that is with orange evidence placards go underneath the cuts so that when everything is put back together, you can see where it was cut and how it used to be whole. So this is a pair of women's jeans and um, they're cut from the top all the way to the bottom on the back aspect of the jeans. This is a woman's tank top that has been also cut and has multiple cuts all within the back aspect. This is just kind of a closer up picture of, of the different kinds of cuts. This is another part of it showing it kind of open. That's how I know it's the back. So this is the rear aspect of the sweater. And what I'm trying to do here is kind of piece it together the best that I can to show that it is not only been cut, but then also has like holes in it as well. <clears throat> so this is a pair of men's jeans and I'm not sure if you can see like right in here and right in here and also right in here are places where they've been where there's cuts on them. Could you state your name for the record please? Officer Rachel Sandlin. In November of 2016 were you working for the sheriff's office? Yes, I was. And were you assigned to the forensics unit? Yes, I was. And did you work uh, the scene of the guy homicides? Yes, I did. Can you briefly describe what you did in response to your call there? Um, I was one of the original responding forensic officers. Um, I photographed several items in the scene, several uh, the scene throughout. Um, Just one second. Sorry. Just need to get that a little bit closer. Okay. Um, the entirety of the scene, photograph the entirety of the scene, as well as several items of evidence throughout, uh, assisted in um, collecting those items of evidence. Again, these are things that you photographed on November the 30th of 2016, is that correct? Yes, inside the forensic lab. All right. <clears throat> so can you tell us uh, what is depicted in Exhibit 562? Um, it's a maroon backpack. I would have to find the exact item number in there, but um, just an overall view of that maroon backpack before any contents are photographed or removed. Uh, again, another overall view of the items within the larger packet pocket of the backpack. Okay. Turn that around. These would be the items in the large pocket of the backpack um, laid out for display since they're, once you open it, there were multiple books and things, so um, everything from the well, and the calculator from the front pocket, everything from the backpack laid out in an overall view to see the contents. So that picture depicts the contents of the backpack? Correct. 
uh, close-up of the uh, notebook from the backpack. 580. Um, a content page of the notebook from the backpack. Okay. Can you increase the size on this, please? And you've got a screen. Um, would you uh, read from your screen, please? What is depicted on this page of the photograph you took? Yes. Get killing knives. Quick, multiple. Get is that carving. Quick or is that quick? Q U I. Is that a C or is it an E? Quiet. Yes, it could be. Yes, I'm sorry. That um, appears to be an E T. Yes. Um, multiple. Get carving knives to make small pieces. Get sledgehammer. Crush bones. Bring blender and food grinder. Grind meat. Keep going. Get bleach. Denature proteins. Get plastic bin for denaturation process. Keep going. Does not matter where they're killed. Just get rid of bloody spots to prevent evidence of time of death, not the mattress or the couches. Get rid of bodies inside house. There and my DNA already there. And then there's a part that's scratched out. Open up doggy door to provide entryway. Can you make out the... Uh, it appears he needs to be... And I can't make out that word. Okay. Um, not intruder. Next line. Um, flush chunks down toilet, not garbage disposal. Get plastic sheeting for disposal process. And then the part that's crossed out, get hollow point bullets just in case. Will be seen buying bullets, just use computer room gun. Check to make sure there are bullets, last resort. He's not alive to claim her half of the insurance, money, and then an arrow, all mine, 500,000. Flood the house, covers, forensic evidence. Turn heater up as high as it goes, speeds decomposition. Bleach reacts with luminol, just like blood, douse area with bleach. Big sprayer, lie, trash compactor, Body gives time of death and an arrow alibi. Don't have to get rid of body if there is no forensic evidence on the body. His fingerprints and DNA. Okay. Next photograph would be 581, exhibit 581. And if we could enlarge that and just read from the top, please. Yes. <clears throat> Minimize things I touch throughout visit. Wear gloves and socks to prevent fingerprints and footprints. Drop something down the garbage disposal to break it. Get him on the ground fixing it. Kill him with the knife. Clean up mess from him before she gets home. Kill her with knife. There's a part that's crossed out. Kill dog after. What's and then above that? leave alive. Can't read. Are you able to zoom in there? Okay. 
ended. It appears to be fingerprints. Okay. Uh, and then take dog with you. I can't read the first word. Him with him is in parentheses. Okay. The next line. Place her in shower and then with dog appears to be crossed out. Turn on hot water and point at her to get rid of forensics. Remove her clothes and take them with me for disposal. Place him in plastic bin and use it to get him into the upstairs bathroom. Cut off his arm and plant his flesh under her fingernails. Place her hand with his DNA so that his DNA is not washed away by the shower. Use sodium hydroxide to destroy his soft tissue and soften bones for transport. Baste once every hour to accelerate. Flush sodium hydroxide down the toilet. Wash out bin with handheld shower head and then direct handheld into toilet to flush everything out of the pipes and into the public waterway. Douse killing rooms, kitchen with bleach. Place hair curler with flammable paper and flammable containers of gasoline in four locations. His killing room, her killing room, his bathroom, her bathroom. Wipe down areas near killing rooms and bathrooms. Turn heaters up to 90 degrees to melt fingerprints and dry everything. Set her phone to send me a text message late Sunday to prove that I was in BR and she was alive, in quotation marks. leave, and I can't read the words it's marked out, through front door and wipe down doorknobs. Timer for flammables set for Friday at 10 a.m. Sunlight masks fire, but not smoke. Everyone at work, so they can't report it. I'm going to show you photograph 582 and ask you to the next one. Can enlarge that to read what is depicted on in this photograph. Ultraviolet light shows fingerprints. Check mail before leaving. To get rid of blood, use peroxide. And there's an arrow um, stating hemoglobin per, pointed at peroxide and bleach, and then an arrow DNA pointing at bleach. Okay. And photograph 583. It appears to be titled Destruction of Bodies um, and then Composition of Body, 20% fat, 20% protein, 55% water, and 5% other compounds. Okay. 584. Uh, it appears to be titled Assets, um, Her Assets, Her Life Insurance, 500,000, possibly more with double indemnity. With him missing slash dead, I get the whole thing. All her other assets are joint. 
Go to him if missing, unknown if he is dead. His assets includes all joint property if missing. When he gets all joint property, also gets joint debt. Knoxville House, homeowner's insurance, possibly but probably worthless after fire, owe 100000 The Sir Goinsville House, appraised at 400000 plus, worthless with Renee on property. Her car, his SUV, and that seems to be bracketed, not paid for, um, his boat, his old truck, and that seems to be bracketed with paid for. His 401k, 80000 possibly less after, zoom in on that word. Could it be taxes? It very well could be, yes. Okay. And the next line? He could possibly have savings and or investment accounts. Tell us your name, sir. Jeremy McCord. And by whom are you employed? The Knox County Sheriff's Office. And uh, were you still employed in November of 2016? Yes, sir. And if you would, oh, how long have you been in the Sheriff's Department? Uh, since September 10th, 2007. Okay, and how did you become involved uh, in this case, sir. I'm the lead investigator on the case, sir. Detective, you understand you're still under oath, sir? Yes, sir. All right, you may resume your direct examination. Thank you. Uh, we left off about um, looking into two Walmart receipts that you uh, received from the residents at 11434 Golden View uh, Lane, one for a transaction with Lisa Guy at 1218, and one for a transaction uh, with an unidentified male at this point at uh, 335 p.m. Is that correct? Correct. Have you had a chance to uh, review those videos prior to testifying today? Yes. I couldn't hear you, sir. Uh, is this the video that you viewed? Uh, yes, sir, it is. It is, sir, and who was later identified as Joel Guy, Jr. And uh, what is the individual who was later identified as Joel Guy, Jr. doing in this uh, portion of the video? He's going through the uh, the pharmacy, uh, the sections labeled pharmacy, pain, and nicotine section for their camera purposes, and he's uh, in the first aid section, and yes. He's using cash, sir.
And that appears to, uh, that is him exiting the store with the one bag uh, in a buggy. This is uh, footage from the Walmart parking lot, um, and you'll be able to observe uh, the defendant's vehicle uh, with the Louisiana registration on the back of it, um, drive through. That does capture it, yes. And from that image, we were able to obtain the, uh, the plate. He pays with cash, and he used the um, hand scanner to scan the totes. Put the uh, receipt in the totes and got his change, and he'll exit. Yes, sir. Removes the uh, the bag that he had placed inside the totes uh, in the car, comes back and forth. Then he actually pulls another tote, uh, basically the same type tote out, puts it in that tote he just bought, and then he puts both of them back in the car. I'm gonna put the tops in. Would you please introduce yourself to the jury? Sure. My name is Dr. Amy Hawes, H-A-W-E-S. And where are you employed? I'm currently employed as the Deputy State Medical Examiner for the Tennessee Office of the State Chief Medical Examiner. Um, by trade, I'm a forensic pathologist, and a forensic pathologist is a doctor who is specially trained to investigate how and why people die. My official appointment as a medical examiner uh, is the title that's given to me through the authority, through the state law, that appoints every uh, county in Tennessee with a medical examiner and a, an assistant medical examiner if needed. So again, my specialty of medicine is forensic pathology. And uh, at this time, Your Honor, please, I would ask that uh, uh, we are tendering Dr. Amy Hawes as an expert in the area of forensic pathology. Dr. Halls is an expert in the area of forensic pathology. Once again, that allows her to render her opinion within her area of expertise. Also, once again, just because an expert witness renders their opinion does not mean that you are bound to accept it. It's your job to judge the weight and credibility to be given to her testimony, just like every other witness. But she is an expert and may render her opinion. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Hawes, uh, are you here today to uh, testify as to the cause and manner of death of uh, Joel Guy and Lisa Guy? Yes. So uh, if you would just please uh, discuss the contents of your report and your findings with respect to Mr. Guy. Sure. Um, so again, the, the autopsy is uh, an examination of the outside of the inside of the body. And the first thing to note with Mr. Guy is um, his remains had been dismembered. The arms had been removed at the shoulders. The legs had been removed at the hips. 
His head was completely skeletonized, and there was some area uh, of defect of the bone of the, the forehead. Um, the, the bone in that area was in such poor um, condition that it was impossible to tell whether that was from the chemicals in which the, the skull had been or whether it was from blunt trauma. Um, there was skin remaining primarily on the back of Mr. Guy, approximately from his lower neck around his buttocks, and the remainder of the skin was gone. The remainder of the skin had been dissolved by chemicals, and with the skin being gone, it basically exposed bare muscle in some of the subcutaneous tissue. So the, the remains were in a, uh, a very complex and, and difficult uh, state um, to, uh, to examine and to describe. So like Mr. Guy, uh, Mrs. Guy was also dismembered. Uh, there were some differences uh, in the uh, degree to which she was dismembered and the way she was dismembered. Her head was uh, completely severed from her body. Um, her arms were disarticulated at the shoulders, and her legs were disarticulated at the knees. So in comparison to Mr. Guy, who had his legs disarticulated at the hips, Mrs. Guy's um, legs were at the knees. So her, her thighs were still intact. Her thighs were still attached onto her body, but her head was completely severed and her arms were completely severed. Much like Mr. Guy, the skin of her back was still relatively well-preserved, um, compared to her front, where there was almost no skin left. Um, Mrs. Guy's head was found in a, uh, a large pot in liquid in the kitchen. And this photograph, what does it depict? This depicts the outside of the containers that um, held the body parts, and they are labeled with um, the case numbers for Mr. Guy and Mrs. Guy. Okay. Is it possible that this knife was used to uh, either inflict sharp force injury or disarticulate the victims in this case? It's possible. Next number. And with respect to this knife found in a different area of the house, is it possible that this knife inflicted the sharp force injuries, some of them, some or all of them, of either of the victims? Yes. Next number. And with respect to this knife and go to the next one too, I think it depicts the other. Those two knives, were they capable of inflicting sharp, sharp force injuries that you observed on the bodies of these victims? Yes. Could they have been used to disarticulate these victims? Yes, it's possible. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Hawes, for your test, for your um, appearance here today. Cross-examination. No questions, Your Honor. Thank you, Dr. Hawes. You are excused. I appreciate your time. Would you state your name for the record, please? Murray Marks. Dr. Marks, where are you employed? Uh, at two places, the University of Tennessee Graduate School of Medicine and at the Regional Forensic Center in Knoxville. What is your occupation? I'm a forensic anthropologist. All right, folks, the court is going to recognize Dr. Marks as an expert in the area of forensic anthropology. Uh, the head was removed way up at the top, which would be um, actually between the second and third cervical vertebra, but there were also
also cuts to, um, again, the bottom of, the, of that second cervical vertebra. The damage to the atlas, or the top cervical vertebra, is associated with, again, movement of the skull. I'll ask you the same question. Uh, uh, do you believe that uh, just a knife would, or maybe even more than one knife, could have inflicted these injuries? Yes, ma'am. Including the disarticulation? Yes, ma'am. Okay, I think that's all that I have. Thank you very much. Cross-examination. No questions, Your Honor. All right, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the state has now rested its case in chief. That does not necessarily mean that you have heard all the evidence that will be presented to you to decide this case. The defendant has no burden of proof in this case, but he is given an opportunity to present evidence to witnesses and exhibits if he wishes to do so. Count six and seven, abuse of a corpse. The state has not met their burden that this was without legal privilege. Um, they have not shown what the legal standards are or that this was in violation of those. So we believe that they have not met their burden on count six and seven. Thank you, sir. General, uh, your response. With respect to the abuse of corpse argument, I just, you know, absolutely disagree with Mr. Halstead's characterization of uh, the state's proof on that. All right, thank you. As to abuse of corpse, uh, the showing whether or not there's a legal standard, the court will instruct the jury regarding uh, the elements of the offense, uh, and I don't know that the state uh, has to prove something that I think kind of comes with common sense, and that is a general member of the public um, cannot just dismember bodies uh, in a community. Uh, and so, uh, to me, that's not really an issue. Uh, Mr. Guy, what I want to do now is talk to you about your right to testify. I'm going to swear you in. You're going to remain seated there at the table. Your lawyer is going to ask you a few questions. Just make it clear on the record that you know this decision is completely yours. So if you please raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear or affirm the testimony you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Help you, God? All right, Mr. Halstead. Mr. Guy, And you do understand, if you wanted to, regardless of what your attorneys advise you, that you certainly could. That decision is completely yours. You understand that, Mr. Guy? Yes. And so it's your decision, after being informed and discussing this with your attorneys, to not testify in this case. Is that correct? That's right. All right. Thank you, sir. Mr. Halstead, would the defense like to make a closing argument? Yes, sir. We believe the state has not proven any of these charges beyond a reasonable doubt. We ask that you find Mr. Guy not guilty. Thank you, Mr. Halstead. Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Um, Mr. Sanchez was right. He didn't finish, okay? At some point, he gave up. He ran out of steam. He ran out of energy. You heard Dr. Marks. It's hard. It's hard work to get rid of two human beings. It was hard to kill them. It wasn't easy. And it's much harder work to take them apart to cut off their limbs, uh, to transport them into whatever vessel you bring to dissolve them in. It's hard work to 
lug all those big heavy products around uh, and uh, and especially when you're hurt because it wasn't so easy to kill dear old dad daddy put up a fight and uh, the defendant got injured and he basically wimped out he gave up he wimped out and uh, left she paid for all of this okay because she was supporting him and think about that she paid for the drain cleaner she was dissolved in she paid for the muriatic acid she paid for the work lights that he thought he was going to need she paid for the sledgehammer she paid for the timers she paid for the plastic sheeting she paid for that garden hose she paid for the small sprayer in the master bathroom. She paid for the big sprayer, the bleach sprayer that was left in the floor of the kitchen. She paid for those garbage bags. She paid for his socks. She paid for his red potato salad that he got when he was buying his medical supplies because he worked up an appetite after all of that and he was in the mood for some red potato salad. Think about that. <laughs> Think about that. She paid for the tubs that she and her husband disintegrated in. She worked all those years at Jacob Engineering to put him up, to keep him in his lifelong whatever program he's in at LSU. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen? She was still looking for a job in Sergoinsville. Do you remember? Renee Charles telling you that she wasn't going to cut him off. She was going to find a job up there. She was going to keep supporting him. And uh, the proof in this case isn't strong. It isn't uh, any. It isn't anything other than uh, overwhelming overwhelming and uh, we ask you to consider everything in this case and uh, we ask you to uh, convict him convict him of premeditated murder convict him of felony murder and uh, convict him of abusing the corpses of his mother and his father Thank you. Joel Michael Guy and doctor number 110145, after being tried by a jury of peers and found guilty of all seven counts, the court does enter those findings. I exercise my role as a 13th juror as well and do find that the weight of the evidence supports the jury's findings. You can have a seat now, sir. All right, folks, uh, by operation of law, the court is required to pronounce the sentence uh, in the first-degree murder counts. Joel Michael Guy and doctor number 110145, the court has already pronounced the life sentence in count number is going to merge count number four into that life sentence. Count number two, the court has already entered a life sentence for Lisa Guy and count three and five version of that. I'm going to order that count two run consecutive to count number one. And count number six, abuse of corpse of Joel Guy, essentially the maximum sentence of two years to run consecutive to count number two and account at, at a 30% sentencing rate. Count number seven, abuse of the corpse of Lisa Guy will be the maximum sentence of two years and 30% consecutive count number six. Uh, so it's a total uh, 
sentence of two licenses consecutive uh, with four years stacked on top of that. So you can have a seat to have a seat.